Hello and welcome to CAD Speaker Series podcast. This week, CAD student ambassador Emily Ausubel interviews Todd Moss, senior fellow at the Center for Global Development and former Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for African Affairs. Todd talks about the future of U.S. development policy under the Trump administration, about the government's new priorities, and how they can impact global development programs. Hi, Todd. Welcome. Thank you for being here. Great to be here. So your talk today at the Center for International Development was titled, Does U.S. Development Policy Have a Future Under Trump? A big question. To start off our conversation, could you please tell us a bit about your experience working in international development, both within the U.S. government and outside of it? Sure. I mean, I was a, 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 a you know, I got my start in development just a, a, the way I think a lot of Americans do. I did a study abroad in Zimbabwe. Um, that was uh, almost 28 years ago, and I've basically been hooked on uh, working on development issues, particularly in Africa, ever since. So I went, did the grad school route. Um, I taught for a year at LSE, decided academics was probably not for me. I uh, went to the World Bank briefly and then uh, moved to a new think tank that was starting up in the early 2000s called the Center for Global Development, uh, which is where I am now. And then I had the great fortune in 2007 to take leave from the center and work in the State Department uh, at a senior level in the in the Africa Bureau. So I've I've gotten a chance to look at the research side, to look at uh, the World Bank MDB side, and to look at the U.S. government side. Um, and I think that's that definitely shapes the way I think about how development issues um, impact the United States and the kinds of things that that we can do to encourage economic opportunity and prosperity around the world. So I know in addition to your professional work in international development, you have also been writing novels, uh, international <laughs> political thrillers. Right. Um, your first one, The, the Golden Hour. <clears throat> Can you talk a bit about those books and what are you trying to achieve through those books? Yeah. So, you know, I never planned to, you know, I, I hadn't dreamed of writing a novel. But when I left government uh, at the end of the Bush administration, I, I, you know, it was a wonderful experience. But the thing I left... Uh, feeling the most was frustration with the way that the U.S. government works. And so I started writing an outline for a book about all the challenges the United States faces around the world um, and how dysfunctional our foreign policy architecture is. Um, and I just decided that I didn't want to spend years writing about problems. I wanted to do something a little more fun. So I decided to take that theme and write a novel um, partly uh, as a way to just get it off my chest, but I also wanted to take some of my experiences um, and take a regular person. You know, people might read thrillers on uh, on the airplane or at the beach because they're fun. I, that's what I do for fun. Um, but I wanted to use that a little bit to take people inside the um, you know inside a U.S. embassy during a crisis or inside the Situation Room at the White House and hear how. Our officials fight a little bit, and I also wanted to write, you know, for the for the first book, the the Golden Hour. I wanted to write a story set in Africa that was um, uh, they didn't treat Africa as exotic; it treated it as like any other region, um, but an important region. And uh, so the first book was set in Mali, um, and uh, and you know I've really had fun doing uh, the novels as well. I've done four now. 
And uh, it's a way to reach a new audience. People that are not going to read a textbook about U.S. foreign policy will read a thriller. And maybe they learn a little bit about how the government works or a little bit about the history of Cuba or Nigeria or Zimbabwe, which is where the other books take place, you know, then I've achieved something. That's, that's great. So clearly you've been thinking uh, both uh, through your career, but also kind of through thinking through these books um, about the direction that you would like to see U.S. development assistance and, and broader foreign policy going. Um, before Trump came into office, what were some of the primary areas that you saw for increased U.S. involvement in international development or, or changes that you hoped to see in the, in the way that we were investing in other countries? And how has that changed now that Trump is in office? Right. So, you know, if, if you go back to about 2005, this was the Glen Eagles G8 summit. It was when um, there was a huge wave of debt relief. Poor countries, almost all poor countries that had big debts, saw their debts uh, erased through efforts by the U.S. government and its allies. Um, and the aid budgets were rapidly increased. And that was uh, that helped to support uh, strong economic growth in a lot of poor countries over the next uh, you know, 10, or, 10 or so years. That world was appropriate sort of in 2005 when aid and debt relief were the big issues. Today, I think it's a lot more about private investment, uh, particularly in infrastructure, and it's really about job creation. You know, the issues in developing countries are not that different to where that what they are in developed countries. Employment uh, is is the first, you know, most important thing uh, for for most countries, and the way that the U.S. For economic reasons, but also for humanitarian and national security reasons, the way that we can encourage um, economic growth and job creation is going to be principally through private investment. Now, there's a role for um, public policy. There's a role for foreign assistance to be supportive, um, but it's really the tools to encourage private Private investment is where we're going to see the big, big development gains over the next 20 to 30 years. Um, and uh, that's where I'm, I'm hopeful. I think with the Trump administration, we've seen a lot of proposed huge draconian cuts to the aid budget, um, a lot of withdrawal from the international community, withdrawal from international um, agreements, um, huge proposed cuts to the international financial institutions. The one bright spot that I see uh, really is a renewed focus on development finance. Um, we don't know what will happen, but the administration seems to be gearing up to increase the, cap the capacity of the U.S. Development Finance Institution, mm -hmm. which is known as the Overseas Private Investment Corporation, or OPEC. Mm -hmm. um, there are parts of the administration that want to shut OPEC down, but it looks like uh, the administration is going to try to make OPEC bigger and better. Wow. So it seems like there's maybe some future increase in our, in our investment, but also potential um decrease, and you're talking about the private sector maybe filling some of that gap. The United States government is an incredibly large funder of development assistance abroad. Yep. Is there a, a possibility that there can be enough investment, whether it's from the private sector or other countries, to fill the gap mm -hmm. in um, our potential decreases in, in international funding? Or do you really think it's paramount that we maintain or stay close to our current levels of funding? Well... Look, the, the big development dollars that in the public sector that are going to uh, support these investments 
uh, are going to come from domestic resources in countries. Mm -hmm. The tax revenues, the, the domestic investments that countries make themselves far outweigh what foreign assistance is going to, to provide. And that's as it, it, it is as it should be. Um, however, you know, you still have that the, U, the U.S. is still providing significant resources in certain areas. Global health is, a, is, a, is the most obvious. And when you see really rapid cuts, it, that does not allow um, other actors time to kind of adjust to the new realities. Um, it's, you know, we would, we would consider development success if the U.S. foreign assistance budget would be reduced over time. Because countries would be wealthier, um, the development needs would be would be fewer. Nobody expects foreign assistance to live on forever. That would be a pure sign of failure. But you don't want to do it in a haphazard way. You don't want to do it in um, in a way without thought to the implications of what you're doing and to help try to smooth that transition over time. Um, and you want to do it in a way, you know, that really encourages um, that encourages governments to raise those revenues that they should be raising domestically and particularly for on the job creation side that that's going to be private investment you know the history of of you know why the US the US was once a poor country um, and it was a mix of public investment and a lot of private entrepreneurship and private investment that allow the United States to be a relatively wealthy country um, and that's what you would hope to see uh, in other places yeah um. <clears throat> One of the other things that you talked about today was the idea of U.S. foreign development assistance being a component of our uh, strategy to secure our own national interests and our own national security here um, and around the world. And, you know, today there is just such a, an influx of conflict and humanitarian disaster um, and uh, real regime instability, government instability all around the world. Mm -hmm. uh, most recently we saw uh, uh, what's pretty confidently recognized as a military coup in Zimbabwe um, ousting President Mugabe. And the United States government has a history of getting involved in regime transitions in other countries and promoting democratization abroad. Where do you see that fitting into uh, our priorities? Do you think the U.S. government should be involved in that kind of work? And if so, in, in what way? Or could it be taking a, a different form like our uh, investment, uh, financial investment? Yeah, so I would hope that the United States, which has a long-standing relationship with Zimbabwe, uh, would get involved. I think that despite some of the rhetoric we're hearing from the administration, that um, Americans still stand for uh, democracy and human rights, and that we would expect our government to promote those things where we can. Um, and actually, Zimbabwe is an interesting case because um, Zimbabwe is a country where the United States doesn't have any major economic interests, and we don't have any very strong national security interests. Zimbabwe is not a counterterrorism partner of ours. Uh, so it is one of those cases where it, we absolutely should stand on our values because there's no trade-off there. Um, and it's a place where the Zimbabwean people um, are looking to the United States uh, for support at this time, particularly civil society. Um, where they feel that they have been largely abandoned by the region and by the international community because Robert Mugabe was in power for 37 years and the international system largely circled the wagons to protect him. 
now that he's gone, there's a window of opportunity to try to um, support uh, a better outcome. The early signs are actually not very good. The people that are now in power are people that have been around Mugabe for for longer than he was in power. Some of them go back to the pre-independence period. And just uh, just recently, the new cabinet was announced, and it's all the old people, and it's very heavily stocked with uh, with military generals. And so it looks to me more like a military junta than it does a democratic uh, civilian administration. So yes, the United States has, uh, I think, has a role to play in trying to encourage a better outcome. And we have one point of leverage with uh, the Zimbabweans right now, which is Zimbabwe owes the international community around $10 billion, including almost $2 billion in arrears to the World Bank and the African Development Bank, of which the United States government is a major shareholder. They need to clear those arrears before they can get any new loans. And that means that uh, the decision will inevitably come through Washington. Now, Washington could choose not to do anything and just let Zimbabwe go with no conditions. But I'm hopeful that um, the Africa, the the few Africa watchers that we have in Washington in in positions will will hold firm on that. Well, it'll be interesting to see what happens with Uh, that. Absolutely. Um, so finally, some listeners may be interested in, in working in international development and especially in the intersection between the private and the public sector and business and, and government. Mm-hmm. Um, what advice do you have for people interested in this type of work? Are there specific courses or skills that you would recommend students or other professionals seek out to best prepare them for this kind of a career? Yeah, so despite the kind of grim picture I've just painted, international development is a wonderful career, very rewarding, and actually I think is going to continue to be a growth industry. This is a little bit of a, I think, a a little bit of a blip on the long trajectory. We cannot avoid international uh, development policy forever. Um, And we're, you know, frankly, we need a lot of fresh blood in the field, and that's going to come from the next generation of development uh, experts. Um, the advice I would give is to really try to get some very practical skills that apply across different countries. Um, don't become an expert in a particular country. Um, it's great to get field work and to become immersed in a foreign culture. So that's the only way you can help to understand a society if you're trying to um, influence it. Um, but you really want to try to bring a, a very specific set of technical or other skills um, that can be transferable to different places over time um, and even even across different sectors. Um, so um, that sounds very theoretical, but you know the, the, the main thing I would suggest people do is really follow your passions. I mean, I started working uh, on the issues that, that I worked on, and I had no idea where that was going to lead in terms of a career path, but I knew that that's what I wanted to do. You know, that, that I think is the best recommendation. If there's something that gets you fired up in the morning, that's what you should do um, because your career is a very, very long time and you're going to spend a huge amount of your waking hours and your mind space and your effort on your career and you better love it. If you don't love it, then you've wa- really wasted an opportunity. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much for speaking with us today. Great. Thanks for having me. If you want to learn more about CID and our events, please visit cid.harvard.edu.